0: Torsten has a question on the rule set of the fundamental process. Torsten, over to you.
1: Yes. Thank you. Um, Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. In MBT Section 2, Chapter 2, Concepts, you outline two assumptions, the first of which is referred to as the fundamental process of evolution. The second is primordial consciousness. To my understanding, the fundamental process of evolution is a rule set, or put another way, a general law of nature. It seems to apply everywhere, that is to say, in any reality whatever, or does it? And it applies to both the absolute unbounded oneness, and later on to the absolute unbounded manifold which are obviously not the creators of this rule set, but they are rather subjected to it. I'm not certain if I understood your deliberations correctly, but if so, my question is, where does the rule set of the fundamental process come from? Did it just happen to come into being, or was it rather created by someone or something? Okay.
2: i think I think the reason that you are having the question is because you 're making the consciousness you know that's the one one of the two uh, uh, assumptions you 're making the consciousness and the rule set be two entirely different independent things, and they 're not they 're really uh, they 're very much connected when you have a consciousness when you have any system, make it more general, not just a consciousness you have any system that is capable of self-modification, okay? and in a system that means you have individuals and an environment, it's all part of the system, and, and it's capable of making self-modification, then it will modify itself in a way to make it more effective in its environment that will happen. And the way that happens isn't that it does it by intellect. It says, oh, I would be more effective in my environment if I was this way, so I'll change that way. It's just the things that are more effective persist. The things that are less effective go away. That's evolution. So it's just a process of taking all the things that can happen and eventually you kind of Naturally by making those random draws out of probability distributions of all the possibilities, eventually you draw everything out of there. And when you do, the things that are better persist, you know, if they if they are more survivable, if they if they more persistent, then they, they go on. And the things that don't, the things that are in conflict with their environment, they just go away. So that's evolution. It's just the process of systems that are changeable, changing themselves just as those random draws are taken from the probability distribution. Eventually, you just randomly come up with something that works better. And that thing that works better then kind of defines the the new state of that being because all the stuff that doesn't work as good kind of disappears and more of the stuff that works better, you know, goes on and grows. So evolution is a characteristic. It's just a fundamental characteristic of self-changing systems. They will evolve to lower entropy states, to more productive interactions with you know with each, with each other, with all the sub-pieces of the system and with the environment. So that's all it is. It's not that consciousness is one thing and, the, and that uh, the fundamental process of evolution is a totally different independent thing. You have consciousness, mm-hmm. which is the, the media, if you will. It's the media. It's the thing that's changeable and then you have evolution that's the process by which it changes so they are different things in that sense but they really are working together so one's the media and the other is a process of change how does it, how does the media change well the media changes by by you know kind of sampling into all of its possibilities could be this way could be that way it was this way Here's the possibilities of where it could go next, and you know, here's a, here's a, now it is a different way. Those things that are most that work best persist, and those things that work least disappear. And that's just the nature of change in a in a in a system that has an environment that affect you know, in a, in an interactive system. That's how we do. We change interacting with each other. We interact with our environment. And that changes us. We're different because of that interaction. That's why people who have traveled far and wide and have lots of depth and breadth of experience are different than people who have never traveled more than, you know, 20 miles from where they were born. Their attitudes are different. The way they think about things are different. The way they interpret data is different just because they've done so much more. They have so much more decision space because they've, experienced so much more so that's just the way we we grow as we uh, as we take on things we, we keep the best and throw away the worst and keep on changing so that's it so they're not really two things two independent things but they're, they're two different aspects of the same thing the media and the and the process by which the media changes
1: okay thank you
0: Okay, Tom, the um, the next question I'm going to move on to is one that uh, I can certainly relate to. Um, I think I've talked to you several times about it before. And that is that, you know, when I'm on a, a balcony on, on a high building, I have an irrational urge to jump. I, 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 I can't explain what it is. Um, forum user asks a question on fear of heights. And they say, listen, I'm afraid of heights. You say that a good way of approaching fear is to tell yourself that the worst possible outcome is okay. But the one thing that bothers me most when I'm in a high place... You can see where this is going, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) The one thing that bothers me most when I'm in a high place is the constant feeling that I'm going to lose control, jump off the edge of the cliff. So... If I follow your advice on this, this implies to me that going off the edge of the cliff saying to myself, if I jump, it's okay. Um, so, listen, I tried this on a bridge with a high solid railing, and it only felt like the chance of me climbing over the railing, jumping, got much higher, and my fear increased. Can you please comment on this? Please yeah. do.
2: Yeah, well, that, uh, you know, one uh, one bit of advice doesn't necessarily apply to every problem, you know, in the same way. Uh, yeah, same, well. Except the worst, right? The worst is that you'll fall and splat on the sidewalk, and then once you've accepted that that's okay, then you won't be afraid anymore. Well, that's probably not going to work for you. Uh, That's not uh, the way that would work. Well, you're afraid of heights, and the reason you're afraid of heights is you're afraid that you could fall from the heights, right? That's what's scary about heights is that they're so high. And what's scary about so high is that you could fall, and if you fall, it's a disaster. You know, It'll kill you, or it'll hurt you, or maim you, or do something that isn't nice to you. So that's the fear, is the fear of falling. So when you get to a height, you have this fear of falling. It's not your fear then, and I don't know whether this is typical of people who have acrophobia or not, but your fear then sees you falling. It sees you you know, moving toward falling, because that's its fear. And when you see that, when you get that sense of it, it's, you know, you're interpreting that as a, as kind of like an urge, you know, to get closer to the edge and an urge to, you know, jump over the edge, because you're, you're seeing that as, that's the expression of your fears, you're going over the edge. So you see that as a, as kind of a nudge to jump. And uh, it's really just the, kind of an odd way that your fear is is communicating with you about that. It's really telling you, no, don't jump. A terrible thing would happen if you do jump, and that's your fear, and that fear is just kind of ratcheting itself up by giving you that sense of, yeah, jump, jump, you'll splat, you know, and so on. It's just the way your fear is working. So what do you do about acrophobia? Well, I suspect that you – You know, most phobias, what what, uh, people do to get over phobias is they try to adjust themselves to it gradually. So they go up on something that's only 10 feet off the ground, and then they get real comfortable with walking over to the edge and looking over the edge, and then they go something that's 15 feet off the ground. until they get really, really comfortable with that, and they do it 100 times, and that's fine. And they go up to the point where they're not so comfortable anymore, but then they keep doing that until they're used to that, and that's okay. And that's typically the way psychologists deal with people with any kind of phobia, whether it's the fear of spiders or, you know, whatever it is. Any any phobia is typically you try to acclimate the person to it gradually to the point that they build up confidence that it's, that, uh, you know, they're not going to, to be hurt by it, but you have the urge to jump, <laughs> which uh, is the way your particular fear is manifesting in you. And it just makes you more afraid, obviously, when you get there and you have this fear. Well, what if I just jump? Well, that's scarier than just saying I could fall. You're actually participating in wanting to fall. So it makes the fear that much worse. So I don't know whether the typical acclimation process would work for you or whether it wouldn't. I'd give that a try. But uh, by no means make peace with jumping. That's not the... (laughs) that's not the way to approach the problem is by saying, Oh, okay. I could jump or not jump. You know, I accept that. I accept the worst that could happen was that I'd be splatted on the ground and I accept it now. So no problem. Um, that's not the right way to go at that particular problem. That's a good thing to do for a lot of fear. <laughs> not for one where you're inclined to jump.
0: <laughs> yeah. We, we seem to have too much to, to still do here. Yeah. I don't think it's a good idea at the moment. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if you saw the next question, Tom. It was actually emailed to us, and I'm not sure that you actually saw it. So I'm going to, I'm going to read it out in its entirety the best I can, and, and let me know if I do a good job of it. Um, I'd like to talk to you, Tom, about how and what is handling the memory access of IUOCs. I know that you mentioned that memory is cleared to petition a free will awareness unit before being born. I notice that we expand our memories by association. But what I also notice is that I think our access to certain memories is restricted to better handle our internal fears. An example of this would be in a dream, I still haven't graduated or I still have to take a test towards graduation in a dream i'm unemployed and i have to go to an interview i'd like to know your input and thoughts on what or who handles these restrictions when it is not our awareness do they have automatic mechanisms to handle this some people would say or may say that hiding information would be some kind of deception or is the lcs does it not mind deceiving us by hiding information as long as the lcs knows that it will benefit the improvement of our quality of consciousness so is it too far to say that lying? For your own good is the way to go
2: (laughs) well uh, the beginning of that uh, was a little different than the end in the end yes the larger consciousness system can give you misinformation if it's for your own good Um, that that happens if you get very and most of us are aware of that happening if you get very arrogant about something often that triggers the very thing that takes you down a peg or two in your arrogance to happen. So, uh, you know, when you're the one that somebody has some mishap and you laugh at them and and, uh, and make a lot of fun of them, well, you're just setting yourself up for a similar thing to happen to you so that you will understand it from another viewpoint, you see. And the world does work that way. So if you are, and comes to mind, you know, if you're a remote viewer and you get very, uh, Impressed with yourself, then the uh, system may give you some misinformation when you're remote viewing to take you down a peg or two, so your arrogance is is deflated. That sort of thing does happen, so the system can can do that. And uh, but it does that because it has a sense of the probabilities, not just guessing and playing with you. It has some sense of the probability of how you are likely to react to that. So it gives you an experience that is going to help you learn. The probability is that, that you'll learn something from that. If it takes you down, you know, if your arrogance gets, gets in your own way, you'll notice that and you'll have a tendency to be less arrogant. So the system has that probability that this is something that is going to be helpful to you. It's not just a wild guess. It's, it's a, an educated guess. You still have free will. You can, you can miss the message if you like, but it's, it's likely that you'll get that message. So you, those things do happen, and that's why you have to always remain skeptical of everything you get. When you're out in the, out in the larger consciousness system and you have, say, fear, you may start seeing all kinds of things that are fearful. You may see, you know, the, you know, the ground is going to shake, you, you know, a big hole will open up under your house and, you know, everything will fall in and everybody dies. And uh, you'll you'll see this earthquake scenario taking place and how horrible it is. And then because you're fearful, then you start going out and, you know, building an ark, right, because it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. So you do all this stuff. And then what happens is, you know, it never happens. And it never happens. And. It never happens, so eventually you say, well, I guess that actually wasn't correct. Maybe I should be a little more skeptical of the information that I get, but I was so sure that I had a direct link to the source that uh, I let my fear get carried away. Well, why did you get the scenes of the, of the earthquake swallowing you up? Well, that scene may have just been given to you because you were you know, fearful and you were depending too much on the source and not making your own decisions. That's another thing. Some people will get to the point that they will they'll run their whole life out of what the source tells them. You know, well, should I, you know, should I do this or should I do that? Well, I don't know yet. Let me consult the source. Let me consult my, you know, um my seer or whatever. They can't do anything on their own without getting a uh, you know, touch with the source to help them make the decision. Well, in that case, the source will probably tell them to go stand on their head, you know, and uh, and nothing will happen, you know, and they, they tell them to do something stupid, and after they've done it, they say, well, why did the source tell me that? Well, it's because you were getting so dependent on the source to tell you things. The source tells you to do something really stupid just so you'll wake up and start making your own decisions again and take your own you know, a free will back rather than giving it up to others. So it'll do those sorts of things to you, which is misinformation, but for a good reason, for a lesson. So, yes, it, uh, it, it's important that you stay skeptical of everything you get. So when you're out of body or you're getting data out of the database and it tells you that this is the way it is, is that a lesson? Is that right? Is that misinformation? Is that good information? And mostly you can tell, you can make a good guess by your intent. The fact that you're doing this and getting this information, is it driven by your ego? Is it driven by uh, your wanting to, you know, uh, get ahead from the information you have? If so, you're likely to get some misinformation mixed in with that information that will cause you trouble. If it's because of love, because of caring, because you're trying to help, you'll find that almost never are you going to get any misinformation when you're doing things for the right reason and with the right intent. So the system does that. Yes, it can can, uh, give you misinformation and we call that a lie if you like. Intentional misinformation is a lie, well then, yeah, it lies. So it behooves everybody to stay skeptical. may just be getting that information for some other reason other than the fact that it's true. It may be something you need to experience, deal with. In our dreams, we get a lot of dreams that are bizarre. We get a lot of fearful dreams. Well, that's given to us as a choice, We have not to be fearful. When the monster comes up in our dream, instead of screaming and running away, we always have that choice to stand there and say, hello, monster. How are you today? How's the family? And if you do, then maybe it will give you a different dream. So why does it give you monsters? Is that because it's such a mean system? No, it's because you need to make better choices. And by giving you the monster, you have a choice to not be frightened. So it's giving you that choice and besides in dreams the monsters can't hurt you so it's a very safe and easy choice once you grow up and realize that fear is the problem then you think in your mind well the next time that monster shows up in my dream I'm not gonna run and scream I'm gonna deal with it and then you deal with it and then you'll get a different kind of monster and even scarier when this time sort of like the last one but with three heads and then you deal with that one, and then you maybe get a couple of more with six heads, and you deal with that one, and after that it goes away, no more monsters, because you've, you've grown up now. You don't, need, you don't need the monsters to make this decision or some other kind of scary thing. You know, oh, i got to stand up in front of an audience and give a speech, and I forgot my speech. I don't know anything. Oh, it's my time. They're pushing me up in front of you know, in the lectern, and i got all these people out there, and I have no idea what the subject is. See, that's just a scary thing. So people have that dream because that dream is is a creation of their own feelings of inadequacy. And then they have to deal with it. Straightforwardly. What are you? How do you deal with a dream like that? Well, I don't know. I guess you tell all the people. You know, I just don't know what I'm up here for. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what you're expecting, but whatever it is, I don't have it. So... Uh. Would somebody like to tell me what this is about? And I'll give it my best shot. Otherwise, thank you very much. I'm done. And leave and take care of it rather than just, you know, covering your head and running out and digging a hole and trying to climb in it. Deal with it somehow. However it is you have to deal with it. Just deal with it. There's experiences that are that are not not nice generally will go away if you deal with them. As long as you run away and refuse to deal with them, you keep getting them.
3: Right.
0: Thanks. Thanks for that, Tom. Um, Obviously, The system
2: system is not always peace and light, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, it doesn't always give you little daisies growing in the sunshine, you know, in your dream. It doesn't always give you, uh, you know, the helping hand. It gives you stuff that will help you grow up. And whether that's misinformation or a monster or, you know, a swift kick in the butt or whatever, that happens. And we just need to learn from all those things, because the quicker we learn it, the less likely those things will happen for us.
0: And some people take a long time to learn their lessons, right?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tom, the next question is from Bob F. of the forum, uh, and it's a question on time in MPMR between incarnations. Uh, Bob writes, I understand that there are more delta Ts in MPMR than there are in here in PMR in the same amount of time. Therefore, those guides in NPMR can easily stay ahead of what's happening here in PMR in thinking about that, I'm wondering about a reference that I've heard mentioned frequently on the forum, namely that there are often hundreds of years between incarnations. If that's the case, then what seems like 100 years to us must provide our guides or even our continuous MPMR avatars the opportunity to accomplish much more than we ever could in hundreds of years here In PMR, So what would our continuous MPMR avatars be doing with all that time on their hands? And why would it wait to initiate another transient PMR or MPMR avatar? Since it is via these avatars that much evolution is accomplished, what would be the point in waiting hundreds of years?
2: I don't know that there would be a point in waiting hundreds of years uh, to get back into the game. In general, you get back into the game pretty much immediately after you get out of the game. Because that's the point. The game is the point. The game is learning. You know, the game is growing up. Um, The only reason that you might uh, be missing for a while is because you got into some other game. You decided not to come back here. And you went someplace else. And you did other things. And you took on other jobs and other learning opportunities. And then later you decided to come back here. And, oh, by the way, back here now has already progressed you know, a hundred years since, uh, since you left. So there might be that sort of thing, but you wouldn't just sit out and twiddle your thumbs waiting to come back in a hundred years. You, you know, the Delta T's are running around. You're in some sort of virtual reality all the time. So the Delta T's are, you know, are, are clicking off for you, whatever reality you're in. Time is passing. Time is fundamental. I hear a lot of people say time doesn't exist and time is, is, uh, you know, a created thing. Well, it is a created thing in our virtual reality because it's just a time loop. It's putting whatever delta t is is uh, reasonable to run the simulation. And other other simulations, other virtual realities have other delta ts. They're not all the same, and so on. So they are a, a manufactured thing, but they all go back to, they all relate to some. Fundamental delta T, which is the is the time clock in the larger consciousness system. That's kind of the, the granddaddy clock that everything else is related to. So that time is fundamental. So whatever virtual reality you're in, time is still ticking away because you're in a virtual reality and it's a dynamic one. If it wasn't dynamic, nothing would happen. There'd be no action. There'd be no change. So it's dynamic. Change means time goes by. If time doesn't go by, nothing can happen. Everything just stays exactly the way it is. It's a still picture. Uh, that's not a moving picture. It's a still picture. Nothing changes. So there's change going on all the time, growth going on. There's no reason why you would just uh, put yourself into uh, some kind of comatose hibernation as a consciousness because you wanted to incarnate 100 years later. You know, that would be a waste of your time. During that time, you could have been evolving, you could have been learning, you could have been growing. So there's no advantage to uh, going into cold storage just uh, you know to pass time away. That's, you'd do something else. So if you went to some other reality frame and did uh, two or three cycles in that frame, maybe each cycle was you know 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years apiece and you did several cycles there compared to the time frame that you have in this one, then you come back and maybe that would be a reason why that might happen. But for the most part, people don't wait a long time. For the most part, they get right back in very soon after they get out. They just need to uh, kind of get themselves together, see what it is they need to learn, get focused on what they have to do. Maybe they take a little breather and some contemplating and some meditating, and kind of get themselves all together and up for what they're going to do next, and then they go do it. After after you've done that, there's really no point in waiting anymore. So, I think the person who waits for 100 years is pretty exceptional, and they've been doing something else at that time, they haven't just been wasting it. There's no advantage in that. Learning is something that is cumulative, so putting yourself in a deep freeze for 100 years and not doing anything at all is not you know, optimizing your potential for learning, taking all those opportunities that you would have to learn, all that time that you could learn in, and, and wasting it. So I don't think that happens very often. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um,
0: Bob F's other question is on appearances in MPMR. Um, Tom has mentioned that for those in MPMR, virtual reality seems to them to be physical. Of course, for us here in our PMR, we all subjectively perceive our own bodies and the bodies of others in human form. So, when Tom switches to an MPMR data stream, I assume that he experiences other persons or entities he meets there as physical bodies. Would these bodies then be in human form? Would they be in another form, depending on what Tom would expect them to be? The same question holds for any of us, I guess, and our own expectations. Further has Tom ever asked if the MPMR avatars that appear to each other in different other... Sorry, I'm going to repeat that. Further, has Tom ever asked if the MPMR avatars appear to each other in different than human forms, regardless of how they appear to him?
2: Uh, Yes, form is often a product of your habits. We, uh, We build form around... Function. Uh, we go to the non physical and we meet with something that communicates with us. So we hear a voice. Hello, you know, how are you? you know, you'd like to talk with somebody and you talk with something. Well, as soon as you start a conversation, you visualize the entity that, that, that the conversation is with. And you do that out of your own database, you interpret that data. Uh, or you make the data up. And that's why people in the non-physical often wear robes. Because that way you don't have to define a very specific body. And mostly they have the hoods up on those robes. And you don't have to define a specific face. You just kind of get bits and pieces of it. Because what you're doing is just putting up a metaphor for a being. And in your world, in your database, your metaphor for being is a humanoid. You know, it's got arms, it's got legs, it's taller than it is wide, you know, and it's got a head on top and that kind of thing. So that's your metaphor for being, and that's what the beings look like. That is you giving your, you know, giving form, giving body to that to that communication. And because you don't really know exactly what kind of being to make it, well, then it's in a robe and the hood's up because that then saves you the trouble of having to, Render a lot of detail it's just uh, less detail that way now if you were uh, if you were different, if you didn't have that sort of bias toward you know you may uh, see that image as something else you know it may be just a talking circle of light or a burning bush or uh, any number of other things that uh, you know talking jackrabbit. Anything that, uh, you know, would would suit, you might build that. But most of us don't do that because we don't have those images in our background. So we don't make that. Now, do these things see themselves with bodies? Well, it depends. If they spent, if they are, if they are there, I'll use the word projecting. It's not really a good word. But if they are there, um, um, they spend most of their time, let's say, in some of the virtual reality not ours, but maybe some other virtual reality, or even in our virtual reality, but they are aware and they're connecting to other data streams. In other words, they are from their reality going out of body or connecting to a data stream other than their normal virtual reality data stream. Okay, now they're going to interpret bodies. However, their history and their experience, if their experienced bodies are kind of triangle-shaped things that uh, you know have antennas on top, Well, then that's how they're going to look at your body. You'll look like a triangle thing with an antenna on top to them because that's their idea of what a body ought to look like. Our idea is humanoid. So when you're a consciousness and you are in a virtual reality, you have an avatar that has this kind of shape to it. because That's what the computer gives us, right? The data, and we make that shape. And then that's how we interpret things. Other people do the same. We may not have all have the same shapes. We have different kinds of shapes. So if you are in, not in a virtual reality, or you, let's put it this way, you're in a virtual reality, but it has a very, very loose, very minimal rule set. The only rule set it has is communication. It's got communication protocols, so you can communicate with another individual. And you've never been in a virtual reality other than this thing that is only just communication protocols, nothing else. Well, then you don't have a physical body. It's just a voice, just thoughts. It's just information you get, and you can trade that information. And you may get the feel of that person, but you don't give it a body because bodies aren't in your environment. I mean, aren't in your, your experience set. They're not part of your everyday environment. So the body we give it is the body that uh, that makes sense to us pretty much. So if you ask that thing that looks like a humanoid what it thinks it looks like, it may give you a picture, and it may be a triangle thing with an antenna on top, you know, and uh, you'll right away say, well, that's not it. It gave me a picture of some sort of device, and it'll still be a humanoid in your mind, and uh, you'll reinterpret that to be what what that thing looked like to you, and, or you'll think maybe it's a computer, and that was that was its. You know, That was its uh, body. Hard to say. We make up all kinds of things that suit our, our story and our background that aren't necessarily true. So the bodies are things that we get by being experienced within a virtual reality with a tight rule set. That's where you have bodies. If your virtual reality is so loose that there are no bodies, then that's not part of your background and you don't see them. So it's not that a body is something fundamental. A body is something we give to a an entity that we're connecting with. Get a data stream from an entity, then we provide that body. So that, like I say, that's why robes are always in fashion in NPMR, because that gives us an out for not having to produce some kind of specific body. And you'll find that, that after, when people first start doing this, connecting with, with the entities in the non physical, they see robe figures or they even see, you know, more detail. You know, it's a man or a blonde woman in a white dress or other kinds of things that they see. But eventually, after four or five years of doing this, the images start to go away. And all you do is get the communication, the image is no longer important. It takes a while for you to lose that, but eventually, uh, you realize that the image is, is not any of the message. That's just stuff you're adding to it. And then all your image, then all your communications are just communications, but you still recognize the individual because you recognize that communication. You recognize the, you know, it's just like you recognize somebody's voice over the phone. You recognize it because it's familiar to you, not, uh, because you have to see the body. And it's the same with, with uh, telepathy. You recognize what's familiar to you. you. You so you can identify people just with a connection. You don't need a, a body, but that takes us at least some years where we get over that body thing and we get familiar with the non physical to where we don't impose bodies on things. And then they're just entities that you communicate with and get to know and get familiar with them.
0: Okay. So is, is, is that the same thing with, say, close encounters, you know, with, with uh, extraterrestrials? Is this why they always seem to all be somewhere human or not look like us? Is it, is it the same thing?
2: Yeah, pretty much for most of those encounters. You know, when we find something that we don't know how to interpret, we make something up. The best pattern match. And most of the ETs that people notice, they're, they're not really in this physical reality. It may seem like it, but they're just data stream, right? Their data stream isn't necessarily being shared among all the people in this physical reality. Let's put it that way. You know, all of us, all of our avatars are just data stream. You know, Our avatar, our bodies, just ones and zeros coming out of a computer. So if you get an alien in your data stream, it doesn't necessarily mean that other people in this virtual reality will also have that alien in their data stream. They may or they may not see, but still it's information in a data stream now when we get that information and we don't know what to make of it, it's not something that's that's that we consider kind of us or ours it doesn't feel too human or whatever. well, if you don't know anything about the larger consciousness system, you only have one other choice: it's an alien, so we make everything that we don't otherwise you know can't put a label on it doesn't feel. Familiar to us than it 's an alien, and we have come by culture to make all our aliens with kind of egg shaped heads with big eyes you know at the at the fat part of the egg and that's somehow that uh, seems right to us, but that 's just our yeah it 's just what we add to it They are still humanoid right they all they all are humanoid now I have been places where I have seen individuals that were not humanoid. And it seemed that this was the way they are. But then again, it's my interpretation. I've seen things that were not anywhere even similar to humanoid. No, they didn't have heads at the top. They didn't have arms or legs or bodies. They were different shaped. And so I've interacted with things like that. And maybe that's just me doing a random fit you know, to a body. It's again, what's the color red? How do you know? You see, you can't share an experience. All you know is what it is you get, whether that was the same thing they see of themselves. Well, you can't tell that because they'll give you a description. And then you take that description and interpret it based on your own information. So you never really know for sure what you're getting is what's really there. Why you always have to be skeptical of what you get. Read between the lines. Don't bother with the lines so much. Read between the lines. What's the significance of it? What does it mean? And let go of the details, like, what does it look like? That's really not important.
0: Yeah, you're right. Just just not relevant. I'm learning that one. Um, <laughs> uh, next question from Radagast has to do with memories and the physical brain. This is it's also a very interesting one. Uh, Tom, you often say that consciousness leads and the body follows. The brain does not store memory because there is no brain. Memories are stored in the non-physical historical database, and what happens in the physical can't affect the non-physical. How is it then that electrical stimulation can cause or appear to cause people to have vivid memories or even hallucinate? wilder penfield carried out such experiments in the 1940s and 1950s it makes sense that a physical electrical stimulus to the brain can make your arms move that's physically affecting the physical but wouldn't electrical stimulus on the brain making us recall a memory or hallucination be the physical affecting the non-physical the physical leading and consciousness following it seems like pretty strong evidence to me that memories are indeed somehow encoded in the brain
2: Now, what is, again, what we have is the brain, the physical, physical, that means the uh, computed virtual brain, sets constraints. And it, if it's damaged, then I've been through that. If it's damaged, then the consciousness is constrained. If electric pulses are sent through it, Then the consciousness is also constrained, but you might say that it's in a way that it's making information, but it's deleting some information and perhaps it gets a sensation that may create data in the data stream that is uh, pertinent to that electric signal going into the brain i have to think about that one a little more. Uh, you've got a point there I'd have to think about, but I believe it falls into the same category. I've never really thought too much about that. The category, though, is that the brain is the constraints. It's, the, it's a, it's a um, culmination of the rule set. So if the rule set says that you put an electrical signal down this brain. Now, the rule set says that we, that we have a brain Right, it's evolved, it's part of our evolution. You cut open a head, you'll find one, and it has certain uh, details in it. Those details happen to be, you know, synapses and electrical signals and neurons and all this sort of stuff. And all of that physical process in there, all is part of the constraints that we as consciousness have to deal with. So, if you get in and you take an electric current and you rearrange the the neurons because of that electrical current then you're changing the constraints of what the consciousness can experience in their data stream now you put a bunch of neurons in there that causes say pain you know electrical shock and it causes a sensation of pain well then you as the consciousness are going to get data based on that on that avatar that's going to give you a sensation of pain Pain. So it's not so much that the body leads and the, and the consciousness follows. It's just that you are at the micro level changing physical stuff, which affects what you know. the rule set says, what that does, what kind of response that changing that physical stuff is going to get. And the consciousness gets that constraint added to it. So the consciousness feels pain, if you will, Because all the molecules on your arm are dancing around at a very high rate, which is called a burn. And when that physical thing happens, you interpret that as pain. Well, it's not that the consciousness is given a pain. The consciousness is interpreting that signal as pain. And I guess it's the same with the the, uh, electrodes stimulating certain sorts of memory. Remember, it's as the only thing the consciousness, the, the individual unit of consciousness can experience are those things that the avatar is capable of doing. In other words, the avatar sets the constraints. So if the avatar is capable of having parts of its brain stimulated and that causes a certain thing, and that's because of the rule set, you know, the rule set, the, you know, the atoms and the neurons and the molecules and the, electrical charges and all that stuff works that then creates a situation that is given to the avatar the avatar then you know that in that avatar which creates constraints on on the consciousness what the consciousness gets so if you take an avatar and you burn their arm well that comes through the data set as an experience of pain in the arm not that the consciousness has an arm the consciousness doesn't have an arm it's the avatar's arm Consciousness interprets that signal as pain in that arm or interprets that signal as stimulating, you know, a past memory. Kind of whatever it would do in the avatar is what it does to consciousness. So it's this map between how the molecules in the brain are rearranged or the electrical signals are rearranged or changed and what kind of event does that, would that trigger in the avatar how do we experience that event and the way that we as consciousness experience it may be to trigger certain memories or to make our eyelids flutter or some other kind of thing exactly how that transpires i don't you know it would be a detail of actually brain physiology so you know if you do this then the consciousness gets a certain experience just like the burn on the arm the consciousness gets a certain experience so in that you're not you're not doing something that that uh, the consciousness can see like the burn on the arm you're doing something in their in their cognitive space by meddling with the rule set that makes the brain function however that brain you know functions in this virtual reality and that has an analog to whatever the consciousness is experiencing so that's you know that's got to be the interface but exactly why you'd get a particular thing for a particular electric charge, well, that's just physiology. And and what that what that means to the consciousness, that's you know that just has to do with the with the rule set and interpretation. Okay. So we'd have to get into it maybe in more detail to know exactly what happened. I'm not sure that I get the whole story of that, uh, you know, that if everybody gets stimulated in exactly the same way, they get exactly the same memory, or it always you know, does something or not, I don't know. But these would just be artifacts of the the um, rule set. And that is that artifact of that thing happening in the rule set is what the consciousness gets in the data stream that mirrors that artifact happening in the rule set.
0: Right. Um, maybe that's something we can uh, come back and revisit on a, a future fireside chat. That would be an interesting one to uh, to look into and uh, go into a little bit more depth on. Um, we're running short today, but we do have one final question uh, from MBT Forum user Turbo. Um, he, he begins with an analogy. Um, he says, imagine consciousness evolution as an endless marathon. Billions of bits of consciousness on a long road to evolve kind like billions of runners in an endless marathon with low quality of consciousnesses at the very start of the run and high quality of consciousnesses at the front so how did the very high qoc iuocs well that's a mouthful (laughs) become so highly evolved compared to the very low qoc iuocs did we all start the run at the same time or did all the iuocs start the run at different times which is why the quality of consciousnesses are so varied. If there are brand new consciousnesses starting the run at, uh, at all the time, then does this mean that the LCS as a whole is expanding, i.e. more new bits starting the run at all times? Or if not, where are the new IUOCs actually coming from?
2: Okay. Um, yes, we have all started at different times. It's not everything started at once. And that's because it's a dynamic system. It's not a, a fixed system. It's not like uh, one time at the big, be- you, know, you know, what is a, uh, in a, in a universe far, far away a long time ago, the larger conscious system, you know, broke into a lots of pieces and it made exactly, you know, nine trillion eight hundred thirty seven pieces. And that's all the pieces that there ever will be or ever could be. That would be like a fixed system, but it's not like that. Uh, Individuated units of consciousness can be created uh, easily in a system. You just take one and duplicate it, you know, copy, paste. You've got another one just like that one. Or you can copy, paste, and uh, you know rearrange it a little bit, uh, very much like the No Man's Sky, right, where you have this, this uh, object that is kind of the core object, and then you can, you can change some random numbers associated with it, and you get something a little different. That that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's easy to make another individuated unit of consciousness when it is really a, a, a piece of information, easily modified, easily reproduced, easily copied, and easily pasted. So that's how the new ones can be made. So the system needs more than the system can produce more. The system needs less than it's got a little more of a problem, but all it has to do is have a place for those. Let's say you have a virtual reality like ours, and a big comet comes out of nowhere and hits the Earth and turns the whole Earth to dust, nothing living there anymore. Well, now all the consciousness that was incarnating to that Earth place can't do that anymore. They'd have to go someplace else. Well, maybe there's some other planet somewhere in that Solar, in that, not solar system but in that uh, universe that I have plenty of places open or some other virtual reality someplace else you see so the, the numbers and how they're employed and what virtual reality they're in come and go all the time there's lots of virtual realities this is not the only one there are others new consciousness are created as they are necessary. All you need to do to keep them all employed is just have enough virtual realities for everybody to work in. You can take a branch off of our virtual reality. You can, you can go back, you know, how many frames ago, reconstitute it and go off in a different direction. Um, It's easy to take our whole universe and just make another one. Just like it, right? It's a physical reality. It's a virtual reality. If you have one, a no man's sky with a, Quintillion planets in it. How long does it take the computer to make another copy? You no know, to be able to reproduce that um, Not very long See so it's it's kind of a an endless thing As many as is practical for the system to deal with the system's finite. It's not infinite so the system only has a certain amount of attention to spend and energy to spend and focus of its own, much less all the individual IUOCs have only a certain amount of focus and of their own. So the system is probably as big as, as is practical for it to be. And as it gets grown up more, it maybe can deal with more and uh, perhaps has been expanding itself as it gets the capacity to expand. Or it may find a sweet number where if it's any more than that, it gets to be too much trouble and, you know, causes difficulties and too little than that. It's not living up to all its potential and it may find some sweet point and stay in it until it actually changes its capacity and can, can change what it does. So, you know, it's just a, a, a living, real system that will evolve into whatever its environment allows and supports so it's, uh, you know, the, the idea of making new individual units of consciousness is a pretty simple idea in a digital system. You just make as many as you need. Uh, and why don't we make them all at the end point? You know, if this is a big marathon, why don't we make all of them be super fast runners? You know, they can run a, a mile a minute. And, uh, and then that way, you know, everybody get to the finish line quick. Well, there is no finish line. And there's no point in making entities that uh, aren't going to reduce entropy. The whole idea is to stay effective, to stay viable. You have to constantly work at reducing entropy. It's the act of entropy reduction that is necessary for the system. That's the same way, you know, it's... there are things in, let's say, our virtual reality. We have the second law of thermodynamics where entropy is always increasing if you don't do anything to decrease it. And if you decrease it, that takes work. It takes effort to decrease it. So you birth a baby. The baby grows up. It grows. It learns. It uh, becomes more. That's entropy decreasing. But eventually it dies and disappears into the little atoms in the soil and dust in the, in the wind, and that's increased. In entropy you see with the with the body now. That's just our virtual reality So if a crystal grows you take a, a liquid and it's got all these atoms and molecules in it and suddenly They all connect in a way that they build this pretty little regular crystal. Well, entropy's being reduced As long as that crystal can continue to grow it can continue to Reduce entropy once it's done. It's done So we're kind of like that we're in a system that has to reduce entropy we have to keep reducing entropy or when we're done, we'll be done, you see, and then there's, there's no point anymore. So if you have a viable system that wants to continue to live and be viable, then the key is to keep growing, keep reducing interest, keep becoming more, keep uh, enlarging your capacity and making yourself more useful. That's what our system's doing. That's what the larger consciousness system is doing as well. Now, what is its environment? That it's in, you know, what, what is the environment that, uh, that uh, it has to uh, adapt to? We don't know because we're consciousness in this system. We can't get out of the system because we are part of it. So I have no idea about that. But it's a good bet that there is an environment because this is a finite system. The larger conscious system isn't infinite. It's finite. It has boundaries. It has limits. So many bits. That can produce, perhaps. You know, we don't uh, we don't know any of that for sure, but we do know it's finite because it's real. Infinite is just a an abstract concept that we never get to. So, I guess those are some big some big thoughts to end on. <laughs> but, uh, right. But, uh, the system does what it needs to do to continue. Lowering its entropy, growing, becoming something more. And you don't lower entropy just by duplicating something. So if I have a book, and that book has a lot of wonderful ideas in it that are really meaningful to people, and then I take that book and I make a copy of it, I haven't really lowered entropy. Well, I have lowered the entropy of a little bit of ink because now I put the ink in very, you know, ordered places and I've maybe done that, but that's... Trivial. I haven't really lowered the entropy of the system. All I've done is duplicated something. The duplication isn't, isn't evolution. Evolution has to grow. It has to become from what it is to something else. It's not just duplication. If we, if we had started and skipped the dinosaurs and gone right to people, well, the people would still be evolving. But they wouldn't have a past. So we started, you start the system and it evolves. The same with the consciousness system. It's evolving and it's evolving in some sort of process and to try to skip that process and jump to something else isn't helpful. That's not, it's, it's not like it's a fixed system. And the end game is to get all of these fixed, you know, numbers of individuated unit of consciousness to the point where they're all up. well, there's always new things coming in. and There's always room for those ones that do become love to go back and help. It's, it's, it's the, the system works by lowering entropy, not just by becoming a low entropy thing. But it's part of our process of evolution, growing this whole system and all of its bits and all of its capacity and potential to something bigger and better than it was. Not just taking itself and duplicating itself. And now it's got two things. Just like itself. That's not. Uh, that doesn't keep the the uh, you know the wolves at bay from the thing disintegrating into higher entropy states. The only thing that does that is actually continuing to lower entropy.
0: Right thank you tom um you've mentioned no man's sky several times today and for those people out there who are not familiar with it they really really should check it out it's it's incredible what they these guys are doing uh, that they can be seen at uh, no mans dash sky dot com okay tom guess what we have a bonus question uh, i think i missed one uh, ingeborg is uh, she's anxiously waiting to uh, ask her questions so we're running out of time but uh, ingeborg Go for
3: it. It it would would be no problem to leave it for the next time because you said uh, the big words the big word at the end of the session already.
2: <laughs> so, oh, go ahead, go ahead, we'll do it.
3: Okay, so let's do it. Um, you know, I liked your comment on the um, uh, idea of um, dissolving the bodies after. Uh, a certain amount of experiences in, in them are that bodies are not longer needed. So then, uh, what is left? I think uh, when the bodies are left, I think we are on the being level. Then I, I guess huh? so. and if we on the being level, I think uh, there is another model we we try to 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 figure out so that we can orient ourselves, what are we doing in the being level? And I think this is the the metaphor of energy. So if there's anything, uh, isn't anything physical left or any shape or something, then energy is left. uh, So this is, my question is, uh, is this energy also only a metaphor? Is there some, can we... on the being level itself, even dismiss the the, uh, imagination or the uh, the, the suggestion of uh, energy.
2: Yes, I'd say that it is a metaphor and probably a better metaphor than energy would be information. Mm -hmm. Not so much energy as that uh, we get rid of the body instead of having, uh, you know, well, I guess the avatar is just information. But it's all just information. And the information continues to accumulate, and grow, and lower its entropy and become more useful and more effective. And that's what creates the whole thing. So, yes, I don't think there is there's energy. is not fundamental. Energy is a concept of something that can initiate change. That's how we think of energy. Energy is a thing that can go out and change something. So, you know, if we reach out and knock over a bunch of blocks, we've, we've exhibited energy in the ridge that we reached out and we hit the blocks that, that took energy. And then that the blocks fall, that's gravitational energy. Energy is a, is a, is something that has the power to change other things. We call that energy. (coughs) And the, the, um, the way it, changes things we call that force it somehow applies some sort of force to make the change but its energy is what implements the force so i think that's a metaphor for change but all you really have is information what we're changing is the information
0: Time flew by as usual. Uh, sorry we ran a, a little uh, over there, Oliver, for you. We know it's late in Germany. Uh, Tom, thank you as always. And t- to everyone who joined us today, um, I'm Keith of MBT Events. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure again to, uh, to mediate to
2: another fireside chat. And uh, at you at home, thanks for watching.